0: Quite often we find that because of inequality, people see other fellow citizens as threats and they see the police as a kind of bulwark, as a protection against those other citizens. And that immediately gets in the way of having a type of police forces or legal institutions that are out there to protect all of us. So we get the policing that is carried out on behalf of some of us, but against others.
1: There's also no real evidence that diversifying police forces makes any difference in terms of the experience of of police brutality. Some of our most diverse police forces are police forces where the rates of police brutality, killing of black and brown bodies is the highest.
2: Recent polls show that a majority of Americans believe we need major changes to how police enforce the law and provide public safety. Policymakers and political leaders under pressure from the defund and Black Lives Matter movements are now considering a variety of measures to improve policing and curb police violence. The ultimate goal? Giving people of color the same public safety protections long enjoyed by white Americans. But our guests today, Harvard Kennedy School professors Sandra Susan Smith and Yanilda Gonzalez, say history has shown that reforming the police is much easier said than done. In her studies of policing in Latin America, Professor Gonzalez says authoritarian police forces have been able to block or roll back reforms, even in countries that have democratic rule. In countries with high levels of polarization and inequality, including the U.S., she says, police are often given the role of protecting us, the dominant group, from them. Professor Smith, the new director of the Kennedy School's Program in Criminal Justice Policy and Management, says studies show that many widely proposed reforms simply have not been effective in reducing civil rights violations and brutality by the police. Measures like anti-bias training, body cameras, and diversity hiring fail, she says, because they put the pressure on individual officers to change deeply entrenched systemic behavior. But if those things don't work, what will? Our two guests will help us thought through this difficult problem and offer some possible solutions. Welcome to PolicyCast. So why don't we start with you, Yanilda. Your research and teaching focuses primarily on police violence and police reform in Latin America. And you examine how democratic politics, for instance, may actually reproduce authoritarian police. Tell me a little bit more about this and maybe start with just giving us a sense of what do you mean by authoritarian police and how does the democratic system foster that even?
0: Well, thanks very much for having me as part of the policy cast. It's really great to be able to have this conversation, particularly at this moment that we're in as a country. So one of the things that I started to notice as I was sort of becoming involved in human rights work and work on police violence, first in the US and then in uh, in Argentina, was that we saw police forces that didn't quite seem to match the things that, what we would expect out of democratic institutions. So I would go to protests or I would work with families and I would go to events and hear about police forces that are acting outside the scope of the law, not subject to accountability, and that often operate in politicized ways. And as I, you know, sort of started to get into graduate school and, 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 and academia um, in more depth, I started to read more of the literature on democracy, authoritarianism, and got into works that were written by folks about author- police in authoritarian countries. And I saw a lot of familiarity of the types of police forces that I've just described, even though those police forces are ostensibly in democratic governments, right? We think about the U.S. and many countries in Latin America. We're talking about countries with elections that are, you know, more or less free or fair. Everybody gets to vote, there's alternation in power, they have legislatures, sort of all these institutions and processes that we associate with democracy, but the police forces don't quite match. And so it was that kind of disconnect between the type of regime, the type of government that we have, democracies in many of these places, and the ways that police institutions operate that led me to develop this concept of authoritarian police and to think about how they operate and are actually reproduced in democracy.
2: And how does that happen? Because it is counterintuitive. I mean, you imagine a sort of democratic system would produce a police that works for all the citizens without the sort of issues that you've mentioned around accountability and acting outside of the law. How does that happen?
0: Yeah. I, That's exactly the question that I asked myself and I sought to try to unpack over the last decade of my research. Again, one of the things, one of the contradictions that I saw, and I think it's actually really easy to see the connection today as we think about in the U.S., that democracies, through democratic processes, create incentives for, for those types of police forces to emerge, right? So I'll explain what I mean. You have unequal, divided societies like ours, like in the U.S., and like many in Latin America and elsewhere in the world, where you have different segments of the population by class, by race, by geography, and quite often we find that because of inequality, people see other people, other other fellow citizens as threats, and they see the police as a kind of bulwark, as a protection against those other citizens. And that immediately gets in the way of having a type of police forces or legal institutions that are out there to protect all of us. So we get the policing that is carried out on behalf of some of us, but against others, right? And so protection is no longer this universal good. It's something that is given to some at the expense of others while others receive repression. And so politicians who are looking to win elections, right? They're going to pick issues that are, you know, going to get them votes. And Quite often when people are concerned about crime and security, policing becomes one of those issues. And so what we've seen in the U.S. is the two political parties taking stark, starkly different positions on, on this question, right? Because they realize this is an area where we can get votes. And so you have um, one presidential candidate, right? President Trump, who's saying crime is, you know, going up and, you know, you should be very concerned about this. And so what you should do is we need tougher policing. All these calls for police reform are just going to make it harder for police to protect you. So what we need to do is actually give police more free reign and, and, you know, loosen in any kind of restrictions of accountability uh, and whatnot that might've existed previously. And so we've seen him actually since 2016 uh, play this, this, the same note, but he's doing it much more emphatically this time around and with a much more clear appeal to authoritarian types of policing. Saying that police are going to be at the polls when people are trying to vote, you know, that the police forces police officers that support him are going to be, quote unquote, enforcing things at, at, at election site, you know, as a form of politicized use of policing. Yeah, so sort of, that's a sort of what I mean by that the elections themselves can generate incentives for politicians to um, reinforce authoritarian policing.
2: But it feels like in the US, we're at a pivotal moment where there is this very, very high profile discourse and a sort of real push for change and reform of the police. What have you seen in your research that feels similar in Latin America and have there been instances where you know pushes for reform have actually led to better policing that works for everyone
0: Yeah absolutely I think that what we're seeing in the, in the U.S. is very similar to the types of processes that I studied in Latin America. They often happen around or leading up to elections. We see there being a kind of convergence of, of societal preferences and demands around police reform, that people that used to disagree about what we want the police to do due to some scandal or some sort of big galvanizing event of police misconduct leads that leads sectors that used to oppose, you know, police reform or that used to sort of be neutral on the issue to then support police reform and we've seen a similar thing right we've seen the largest protests in the US you know that we've ever seen around the issues of police violence and we've seen sectors that used to not support policing police reform get on that camp and so that those types of mobilizations happening around elections in in the in the case of Colombia I mean in the case of Buenos Aires province in Argentina these are two cases that I studied where police forces were of course in, if you can imagine police forces being in much, much, much more dire straits than anything that we've seen anywhere in the U.S., you know, engaging in much higher levels of violence and higher, much higher levels of corruption um, and the like. But these transformative moments, which are very similar to the one we're seeing our own, led to very comprehensive reforms along everything from police education and training to recruitment to internal and external accountability and oversight to pathways for citizen participation in policing and promotion standards, sort of all kinds, every sort of aspect of policing was on the table to be to be to be changed to be looked at and so in both instances we saw very comprehensive and far-reaching types of reforms be enacted and this was back in the 1990s. And again that grew out of processes where different sectors of society and politics came together and said we need to figure
2: this out. So it can happen, you can reform.
0: Well, <laughs> you can pass legislation and that itself is hard enough and you and you can begin to implement it. But the other side of my research is how those reforms can also become undone. And so when you go back to those moments of societal division which I well, fragmentation and you start to get kind of fear of crime being more salient again et cetera, et cetera you you get those sectors of society being divided again and that opens up the the political space for politicians to be like okay I can sort of exploit this to my advantage and just say you know to loosen the cuffs on our police we need to you know these reforms are actually making our police weaker and unable to protect you and so in both instances in the cases that I just mentioned in Buenos Aires uh, Argentina and in Colombia elections gave way to those kinds of discourses and reforms started to be undone piece
2: by piece. That's so actually, you know, Sandra, let me bring you in here because you wrote recently that America's in this great moment of sort of focus and discourse around racial justice, policing, etc. particularly after, in fact, triggered primarily by the murder of George Floyd. And for most people, this moment felt very different, but you were a little more skeptical. I mean, your sense was, yes, this feels different, but there's a really good chance that we'll find ourselves here again in the not too distant future. Why is That why were you skeptical?
1: Well, I was skeptical for two reasons. The reason that lay behind the argument that I made in the Guardian article was because even if we were miraculously to undo this institution we call a racial domination, the criminal justice system, penal system that does so much to dominate black and brown bodies. What's happened historically is that whenever uh, an institution of racial domination has been either weakened or eliminated, it's almost always replaced by another immediately. So slavery was replaced by Jim Crow. Jim Crow was replaced by uh, segregation, and in the northern cities, uh, segregation in the northern cities was replaced by hypersegregation and mass incarceration. So what happens? So you know, it's hard for me to be very optimistic when, historically speaking, we know that um, in a racial state like the U.S., one form of racial domination will inevitably follow another. So even if we were to dismantle it, we'd have to do a lot of work to not allow another to replace it. So that was what I was thinking when I wrote the Guardian article. But there's another issue that I think is at play here, and that is often these institutions aren't truly threatened, right? It takes it takes quite a bit to threaten an institution. And, and the way that that happens, at least in part, is because the, the reforms that get put forward are often reforms that don't do anything to fundamentally change the patterns of behavior on the ground, right? So when we think about the reforms that have been put forward in the current era, they're set that I think have been embraced by lots of municipalities across the country. I'm going to take Boston as an example because they're struggling through now agreeing on a set of reforms. But what's on the table now are three things. There are actually five uh, things that they're trying to do. There are three that uh, I'm going to highlight first. And one is implicit bias training, right? This is all the And this is for the police. You're talking about reforms for the police. And this is for the police. We we need to train our, our police to understand that they have implicit biases and that these implicit biases are shaping their behaviors in ways that produce these help to produce these disparate outcomes. So let's go through this training. They will understand that they are impacted by this. And then when they go out and engage with the public, it will make it so that they are less discriminatory in their actions. They'll be more aware that this is playing itself out. And that makes sense. It it does make sense theoretically, but there's very little evidence to support that implicit bias training ma- makes any difference whatsoever. I actually don't know of a study that indicates that implicit bias both shapes individuals' ways of thinking long-term, right? It'll impact the way I think for a day or two. Catch me a week later, <laughs> I'm back to basically where I was before, But even still, let's say it held, there's no evidence to indicate that it it shapes behavior. In fact, the most recent study that's come out using the New York City uh, Police Department, which paid almost $5 million to train their officers over the last couple of years. So there was a study done to see whether it mattered. It made a little bit of difference in terms of how they thought about it. They understood that they had implicit biases or more people understood it and, and bought that it was a thing. But it had no impact on their engagement with black, brown, or white bodies. Um, and in fact, to the extent there were changes, it actually affected, it created greater disparities, right? They were more likely to treat in problematic ways black and Latino uh, residents of the city. So, no evidence to support this. Why put this on the table when when there is so limited support? I would argue it's symbolism. But one of the other things that they have decided that they, or they're thinking seriously about adopting, are these body-worn cameras. This will increase transparency and accountability. We see, you know, we know that our actions are being followed, et cetera, being tracked, then we will behave in ways that are more consistent with what's expected of us as professionals. And that too makes sense, but it turns out it doesn't actually change the behaviors of officers. Most of the studies that have been done show that it has has no effect, does nothing to affect the behaviors of police officers. More than half of the studies that have shown this makes no difference.
2: But why is that? If, if you're watching what the police are doing, if you can see how they're behaving, why would a policeman not be deterred in behaving outside the law if a camera is recording all his interactions? Is, is there something about how the the tapes are viewed? I mean, what, what what's the problem there,
1: really? I'm not sure what people have put forward. What I imagine is that there are a couple of different pathways. One is that when you're in a situation where you're engaging with, you know, the public, you forget, you might forget that you have on the camera and so you just, you just get into the flow. It's kind of like when I'm teaching, I just, I'm just, I'm off and I don't really realize anything's going on until teaching is done and all of a sudden I'm present again. So maybe it's the case that when you engage, especially in situations that might be stressful to you, you forget that the cameras are are on and you do what you usually do. Another possibility, and I think that this is a strong possibility, is that because police are protected in almost everything that they do. There are very limited consequences or sanctions for problematic or unprofessional behavior. I don't really have to worry about about someone seeing this affecting how I am, you know, how I'm treated, whether or not I am sanctioned. Another possibility is that, you know, in a lot of police forces so far, they have control over whether they show these tapes They often have control over whether they can edit the tapes or redact them before sharing. In some cases, they don't share at all or they share when they feel like they they want to. We know, for instance, in the case of the Rochester Police Force, the event that led to the death of, uh, I I, honestly forget his name off the top, so forgive me. But his death took place in March. We didn't get, and and I think it was unclear whether people even knew that there was video until July, right? So not even the mayor knew that this existed by her accounts. And that's because the police actually have a lot of control over the, the material that is being recorded. So despite the claims that this will lead to greater accountability and transparency, because the police departments often have so much control over that, that, that material, it doesn't. So I don't have to show it. We're going to keep this, either keep it quiet. We say we didn't have our cameras on, as was the case in um, Brianna Taylor's situation. They had had it running, but they said they, they didn't. Or you can control every other step of the process. Then why do you have to worry if you know that there's a fair bit of control that you have if not most of the control in that situation? So I think there are a number of reasons why it doesn't fundamentally change. Some of them are structural and others are probably more psychological. I'm in the zone and I'm not thinking about it. I suspect a lot of the structural is what is playing a part in that. So, but what it means though, is that it's not making a difference. So we can, we can spend all the money we want (laughs) to suit up our officers with this and say, This means residents of our fair city that our police will be more accountable and the, the processes will be more transparent. But it's not the case because it doesn't fundamentally change their behaviors. And then, of course, this is something that's been put on the table for for a couple of decades, at least now. And that's diversifying police forces. Now, I am fully I. I fully support diversification of all workforces. So what I'm about to say is not an indication that I do not support that. But there's also no real evidence that diversifying police forces makes any difference in terms of the experience of, uh, of police brutality. Some of our most diverse police forces are police forces where the rates of police brutality, killing of black and brown bodies, um, often unarmed, is the highest. So descriptive representation doesn't matter a whole heap in that context either. And, you know, and, and I'm, I'm going to anticipate you're going to ask me why. In some ways, it makes sense. We imagine that individuals can come and change institutions, but the institutions do more to change us than we do as individuals to change them. So, you know, there's a question about who becomes police officers, what that training looks like, and what the socialization looks like when you're on the ground, and what the institution tells you about who you engage and how you engage them. And if you don't act in ways that are consistent with the culture of a workplace, you get sanctioned, or it becomes so uncomfortable that you end up leaving for whatever reason. So, you know, there's a self-selection process both before, as you enter but also it shapes who leaves and so it's not that surprising that bringing more black and Latinos into these spaces doesn't fundamentally alter these outcomes they are being they're being educated trained socialized an In institution of racial domination they become agents of that institution regardless of their race and ethnicity there are a couple of things going back to the Boston situation, that Boston's um, task force, the task force that the mayor convened in order to look at this issue that I think could make a difference, but historically often hasn't, and that's civilian oversight review boards. If they are fully independent and empowered to do the work of investigating and suggesting punishments that get meted out, that might change how police operate because they're no longer as buffered or as protected by the system that currently protects them. The problem is that many of these oversight boards don't have that kind of power. In New York City, for instance, these oversight re- review boards do a lot of work to investigate what's happening on the ground. But at every step in the process, the NYPD says what kind of information they get, when they get it, if they get it at all. And they even can override whatever punishments might be recommended by the board, right? So they have first say, second say, third, last say. They have all say. And so there's unless you truly have a fully empowered and independent review board one where they're actual citizens as opposed to former police lieutenant's and that sort of thing you're not going to get much happening
2: this is probably an unfair question because you're not in the police force but It would seem to me that if you were on the other side of the argument, you'd be saying, what do citizens know about what it takes to police? I mean, how do you investigate a criminal act if you've never actually been in the police force? I mean, I I read some time ago on some discussion board that was predominantly police officers or ex-police officers arguing for the chokehold, saying that this is something that we're trained to do because it's effective. You know, So don't Ban that because you've never been a cop and in a dangerous situation. This is something you need to do. So I can imagine that, and I just want to put this out there that the counter argument would be: you know, a citizen investigating something that is a professional line of work and specialized might be difficult to do because you don't know what happened in that circumstance. I mean, I I don't know if either of you want to comment on that, but I, I just wanted to put that on on the table.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, this is always an issue with policing, even when you have not even investigation of cases of police misconduct, but even just Citizens being involved in any aspect of shaping policing, they'll often say, well, what do ordinary citizens have to say? But, you know, we have actually a lot of examples of this in the U.S., uh, starting with juries of citizens being called on to do precisely this, right, this kind of work to, to, to make these determinations of the law in which the vast majority of, of them and of us are not trained in doing. And so I think that what what I would say is that, you know, security provision is not only a context or a task that should be carried out by police. And it is something that that sort of all of us should have a role in. So I think that where we get into trouble as societies is when we say only police ought to have a say in what police are doing out on the streets where all of us are implicated and involved. And so and so I think that it's, it's really important to respond to that argument with the counter argument that, you know, all of us have a stake in the provision and a role in the provision of security and that we ought to be involved in sort of the the determinations. I mean, just as juries do, receive the necessary guidance and, and training to make those determinations. But we don't shy away from having citizens judge these questions in cases of juries. And I don't think we should shy away from having you know, citizens and, and, and particularly just civilians, including many who do have specialized training in being involved in these questions. Um, and if I could just sort of add to what Susan said about the importance of having true power, there is a great report by police ombudsman in Sao Paulo when that, that office was created. And like, it's been a really transformative institution because it has created so much transparency. We know so much about how the police force in Sao Paulo exercises violence and and, bi- and violates many, many, many rights including how that has changed over the years, which is something we don't really know very well for the U.S. But in the first report, it was just like, you know what, we've come all this way, we've done all this work, but transparency alone is not enough. And so I think that any kind of civilian entity absolutely needs to be equipped with the right authority to have real
2: power. Terrific. Sandra, we we interrupted you. You were giving us a list of some examples of things that could work. So why don't you continue on
1: that? One of the things that I wanted to add to what Yanilda said was in response to your question about what what do civilians know. I mean, you know this question is the gold standard. Here's my more silver, bronze, bronze-ish standard. What we know is that in the same exact circumstances, police treat Black folks, Brown folks, differently than they treat White folks. They're far more likely to use... Force in situations where the black and brown folks aren't doing anything um, than they are in cases with white folks, and in cases w- where white folks are more actually likely to, to behave in an aggressive manner, they are far less likely to engage them or in, with, with force in situations like that than they are with black and, and brown people. And so I, I think if you were to look at the evidence of how they're responding differently to the same kinds of acts, And that we we know based on police's own reports of what they're doing, that they almost always respond more violently towards black and brown bodies than they do towards white bodies in the same situation. I don't need to be trained (laughs) in police procedure. All I need to know is that in the same situations this is happening. And so that's what we want to eliminate. We want to eliminate this disparity in such a way that black and brown people are being treated with the same kind of respect, dignity, empathy. Um as white folks are being treated, that's what. And because they don't seem to be able to, to police themselves in that way, I do think we need to put in place these independent bodies that can assess and meet out punishment for these kinds of, of acts. So I just wanted to add that point. The final thing that I was going to suggest that might help, at least in some way, is uh, consistent with the recent calls for more data and recording practices that will also maximize accountability, transparency. But here again, because police departments often have full control over what data gets collected, who gets to see it under what circumstances that becomes a problem. So for me, a lot of what has to happen even before moves towards data collection and oversight review boards Is actually on some ways to balance the power. Police cannot have the amount of power that they have to determine almost every aspect of processes that allow us to assess their behavior. And because they're public servants, I actually think it's completely reasonable to have this expectation in almost every way. I I actually don't know of a way that I feel like it would be unreasonable to do this. But over the course of the last three or four decades, they've amassed a kind of power that means that they can protect the institution itself and members in it, which is why so few people get punished for the wrongdoings that they engage in.
2: Yanilda, I have to bring you back in here to see if you have any additions that you might want to add to the types of reforms that you have seen work or that you think could work based on your research in Latin America, things that maybe could work here in the US.
0: I mean, I'm always such a pessimist with police reform. And and I think we have to distinguish what works with what can last, what can actually endure without coming under the typical strain of police resistance and, and politicians sort of incentives to undermine police reform. So, I've seen really robust uh, community participation happen in Sao Paulo and Buenos Aires province in a way that actually shapes what police end up doing. So, you know, sort of police forces being responsive to, to community needs with the support of like a ministry of justice, a ministry of security that actually reinforces the things that they do. So in Buenos Aires province, citizens would draft crime maps in these community meetings and those maps were then used by the ministry to evaluate police Performance. And so it's not just police performance being judged by like arrests or very grimly, as it was the case in many places in Brazil, by the number of killings. But it was sort of, are you responding to just sort of what citizens are asking you to do? The problem with that is that when such citizen participation is robust, police then end up on, uh, you know, resisting it to the point where they uh, end up eliminating it, or that we end up with a type of citizen that participates in these meetings that actually demand police repression, that so they actually want the police to come in and remove people experiencing homelessness they want police to come in and engage in all kinds of discriminatory types of policing. So I think that policing itself is just highly fraught with reinforcing inequalities in society. And so that even the best types of, of reforms may fall prey to the, the, the those types of inequalities, sort of reinforcing social inequalities. But I do think that having more and a more diverse type of citizen voice is, is essential. And I would also say that in terms of what works and what lasts, rather, are, are reforms that sort of you incentivize police to see that, uh, that certain things do benefit them.
2: And isn't that what's at the core of the whole defund the police argument? I mean, most people see that as saying dismantle the police, get rid of the police altogether. But my understanding, and correct me if, if I'm wrong, is trying to find a way to improve policing by removing the things that police are not necessarily equipped to do or to do well. I mean, is, is that what I'm hearing you say?
0: I mean, I think that's what I'm saying. I I, I think that, um, I don't know about improving policing. I think it's, again, my sort of pessimism about, are we ever going to be a society that doesn't have police? I mean, I think there's a lot of incredible visionary work by abolitionists that, that would say precisely that. I, I think my work makes me feel more pessimistic about that being a possibility in unequal societies such as ours. But I do think that one way to sort of offer more protection to affected communities and to, again, reduce the police's power is to do what I sort of have said is reduce its role in all these things. Because one of the things that I heard in my interviews was when you've got the police in charge of everything, and you're the mayor, you're the governor, you're the president, you're not going to want to antagonize that police force, right, when they have their hands in so many things. And so if you reduce the things that police hands are are in, you reduce their capacity to, to disrupt things. And I think that police forces themselves, police leaders would say, yeah, we should not be doing things for which we're not trained. And so I think that this is an area where I think many sides that may actually hold different types of opinions, like from the abolitionist perspective to people who just want safer, more competent policing, would agree that, Police involvement in all these areas of life uh, ultimately uh, cause more harm than good.
2: So we had thought that we could get to talking about the criminal justice system in the U.S., but we're definitely not going to be able to do justice to that in the time that we have. So, Sandra, you're just going to have to come back to PolicyCast and talk to us about some of the work that you've been doing, particularly around pre-trial detention. But before we wrap up, I, I guess the question that I must ask before we end is: So, what do you think, given the moment that we're in right now in the U.S.? What do you think policing and criminal justice, even though we didn't really touch on it in this particular conversation. What do you think it will look like post the moment that we're in, in the U.S.? And Yanilda, why don't you go first?
0: Well, I mean, I think, again, my work here leads me to be more of a pessimist, just seeing what happens after these sort of transformative moments. And I think Susan is far more qualified here to speak as to the moment of sort of criminal justice reform that, that we have been living in for the last few years. I'm worried that a kind, the kind of consensus that saw like, You know, everybody from the Koch brothers to the ACLU wanting some kind of criminal justice reform. I'm worried that depending on how the election goes, we may see a return to the kind of very punitive law and order, quote unquote, law and order types of policies. That we've seen in previous decades, because sort of what we saw in Latin America was a push for not only undoing police reforms, but sort of tougher sentencing, you know, sort of loosening the reins on protections for um, for the accused. Um, and so it, it, we have to pay attention to sort of what the electoral incentives are. And how movable is public opinion on these questions? Because I'm afraid that, again, depending on how things turn out in the elections, there may be incentives for people to mobilize those who prefer more punitive types of policies and oppose anything that that looks like reform that they, from their perspective, weakens the fight against crime.
1: Sandra? I expect more of the same. I'm with Yanilda, I don't have much cause to be overly optimistic or optimistic. I think in addition to the really incredible points that Yanilda has made, in the U.S., I think that it, there's another force that helps to block change, and here I am going to draw from a recent op-ed in the New York Times from the former mayor of Minneapolis, Betsy Hodges, and she wrote on this very topic soon after the the murder of George Floyd, and as a just to read a segment, an excerpt from. From this essay, she says, whether we know it or not, white liberal people in blue cities implicitly ask police officers to politely stand guard in predominantly white parts of town where the downside of bad policing is usually inconvenience. And to aggressively patrol the parts of town where people of color live, where the consequences of bad policing are fear, violent abuse, mass incarceration, and far too often death underlying these requests are the flawed beliefs that aggressive patrolling of black communities provides a wall of protection around white people and their property so what what I think that we're up against is not just a, conser- a fairly conservative block of folks who are embracing law and order and you know want to quell squash any kind of dissent we actually also have kind of silent, support among those folks who would present themselves as being fully in favor of progressive change. My sense is that what former Mayor Hodges uh, has argued is exactly what does also play out in, in these realms. And that also leads to a co- kind of complete blockage of real change. And so what then we do get are these reforms that nibble around the edges. And then we could say, hey, we've done something. Look, we've acted very quickly. And this should produce some change, don't you see how much we're doing here but it actually doesn't produce any real change um, at all and it certainly doesn't challenge any kind of hegemony or racial hierarchies so i expect to see more of the same until we get a real commitment from groups of people who i think have been whether they realize it or not fully committed to the status quo
2: wonderful well i can't thank you both enough for taking the time to talk to me today so thank you so much Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us for our next episode. And if you'd like more information about other recent episodes or to learn more about our podcast, please visit us at hks.harvard.edu policycast.